Let me start by saying when you grow up in a religious home like I did, uh, it's easy to learn to love your religion more than the people for whom the religion was given. And then if you're not careful, you end up hurting people with the religion that was given for people. And then we wonder why people don't want to be part or get involved in our religion. And then it goes round and round and round. And so some of you, I know that's part of your story. Some of you gave up on a church. Some of you gave up on a religion. Because you ran into some church people who seemed to love their church. And they loved their religion more than they loved you. And that was kind of discouraging, wasn't it? We, we are in a journey right now with the life of Jesus. From the moment that he steps onto the pages of history as an adult until the time that he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And one of the key things about this series that we brought up repeatedly is that Jesus came to introduce something new. He did not show up to continue something old. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. He didn't come so that we could complete the book and have the whole Bible Jesus came to earth. God sent his son to this planet to do something brand new in the world and for the world. He came to establish a brand new covenant, a brand new contract, a brand new arrangement between humanity and God. He came to bring us a brand new command. And this new command that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks because we're working through the story of Jesus, so we're getting there. This new command would become the governing ethic of his brand new movement called the church. So now where we uh, left off the last time in this journey with Jesus is he had just revealed for the first time what his upside down agenda would look like, what the kingdom he was calling for would look like. And we call that revelation the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a sermon that Jesus probably gave many times. Uh, probably the, the core content of, of what he had whenever he gathered a group of people. And in this message, he began to contrast himself with the laws of the land and with the laws of that era. He began to say stuff, you probably heard this before. He began to say stuff like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Or, you have been taught, but, but I say. You've heard this over and over again since childhood, but I say. And his audience realized, hey, Jesus, you're contrasting yourself with Moses, with the lawgiver. You're contrasting yourself with the covenant maker. It was Moses who came down from Mount Sinai with God's code for our conduct. Moses is our guy. Moses is our lawgiver. You can't stand in contrast to Moses and be a part of our system. You can comment on what Moses taught, but you don't take away from it. So there's a tension in that audience. They recognize what's going on. So previously on the Upside Down, we looked at a command, a comment, sorry, that Jesus made. He wanted it to be clear. And so he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the law of the prophets, that's just what the first century uh, Jews called their scripture. And it was basically everything from Genesis to Malachi, everything that's in your English Old Testament. 
I have not come to abolish the law, but. There's something that is about to happen. You're, you're not imagining things when you hear that tension. Change is coming. The tension that you feel is real. I have not come to edit them. I have not come to say that they're wrong. I have come to fulfill them. So if God's arrangement with ancient Israel was an assignment, Jesus says, I've come to complete it. If the arrangement was a math problem, Jesus is saying, I came to solve it. If it was a plane, he said, I've come to land it. And even though it was disturbing, and even though it was so new and there was this tension inside them, Matthew tells us this at the end of that sermon, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This surfaces another issue. Just how much authority did Jesus really have? Did he really have the authority to replace everything that Moses had put into place? Did he really have the authority to replace everything that King Solomon, who built the temple, had put in place? Was he really the person that they had been waiting for all those centuries who was supposed to bring them something new and bring it into the world. So soon after that, Jesus has a, uh, a very interesting conversation with a group of Pharisees. And here's how that went, okay? At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were uh, hungry and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And everywhere that Jesus goes, he goes in a crowd. And in that crowd, there were frequently Pharisees and Sadducees. They were in the crowd and they were watching, trying to trap Jesus. They were like paparazzi that were there, always trying to get that one embarrassing photo. They wanted to separate Jesus from the crowd. They didn't like his uh, popularity in general and the common folk popularity. Well, that just made them feel uneasy. That made him seem dangerous in their minds. And so when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, aha, caught you. We see what you're doing. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Take a photo. Get it up online fast. And Jesus stops. And he lets the crowd come in because he wanted to make sure that they could hear the whole conversation. And so he says, basically, okay, stop it. You know as well as I do that we're not breaking the Sabbath. There's nothing in the law that says that you can't break the head of grain off when you're hungry. Nothing says that. And he throws it right back at them and goes, besides, you know that priests work on the Sabbath. They go back and forth a bit here and there. And then Jesus gives them the big overarching principle that is so important for us. He says, you're so concerned with the Sabbath. You're so concerned with breaking the Sabbath, but you've got it all wrong. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a huge idea. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, couples don't have children so that there will be someone to play with the toys. You, you, you've got it all backwards. God is not more concerned for his Sabbath than he is for his people. 
It was because of his concern and love for his people that God created the Sabbath. You think God loves his law. You think he loves his more than his people. You think that because that's the way you think. And this is what many religious people do. They fall in love with their religion. That leads them to neglect the people to whom the religion was given. They prioritize the law over people. And this is the essence of legalism. This is the essence of why so many people have just walked away from the church. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. And that might be your story because anyone um, in church, might, might have been from the church that you went to where you have experienced that someone had prioritized the Bible over your divorced mother or your gay brother or your unmarried pregnant niece. And throughout the Gospels, part of the new that Jesus is bringing is this. When people use the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. So this conversation goes back and forth, back and forth, till uh, he finally brings it to an end. Uh, he, he lands this statement that we looked at last episode. It's a hinge point uh, for where we are going to go today. So look, you're, you're, you're so concerned about the Sabbath, and you're so concerned about the law, and you're so concerned about the temple. Let me give you a little information. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. To declare yourself to be greater than the temple, well, that certainly sounds like arrogance or ignorance or it's insanity. Whatever else it might be, it's definitely called in that world blasphemy. Nothing was greater than the temple. And certainly no individual person could be greater than the temple. To say that you are greater than the temple is a threat to the temple. And a threat to the temple is actually a threat to the nation. The Jewish population in first century Jerusalem and in the years to follow, they would die in order to protect that sacred piece of real estate. About 37 acres given to house the law of God. It was the very center of their whole world. Nothing was greater than the temple. If you threaten the temple, you threaten the nation. You think I'm just exaggerating? Check out this story. A couple years after uh, Jesus said, said this, we're in 40 AD. The citizens of Jerusalem get wind of a plot. The infamous Roman emperor Gaius Caligula uh, had actually shipped a statue of himself to the coast. And they were in the process of shipping it by cart. This statue of Caligula, his plan was to have this statue installed inside the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It was as if he was trying to pick a fight with the Jews. Petronius, the governor of Syria at that time, was given the assignment of going to the coast, go to pick it up, get, grab your legion, go, um, and let's transport this statue south, take it to the city of Jerusalem, and place the statue of the emperor inside the walls of the temple. And when he arrived in the port city, in order to take possession of the statue to begin this trip, he was met by thousands and thousands of Jews. And when he threatened violence, instead of fighting back, they went down on their knees 
pulled down their cloaks. They said, we are willing to die. They exposed their necks to Roman blades as if to say, we will die before we allow you to desecrate our temple. So Petronius eventually made his way to the, the city of Tiberias. And when he made it to Tiberias, there were even larger crowds. First century Roman historian Josephus, he wrote this. He said, so they threw themselves down upon their faces, stretched out their throats, and said that they were ready to be slain. And they did this for 40 days. Farmers went on strike. The economy was in jeopardy. Petronius had no idea what to do. This is a stalemate. You couldn't just simply solve this with armed conflict. The Romans were fine with armed conflict. They like armed conflict. They're good at armed conflict. But this would be genocide. And so he wrote a letter to the emperor asking for some advice. And as he writes the letter, he knows that his failure to deliver that statue into the temple would cost him not only his job, but it would probably cost him his life. But he didn't know what to do. Then, in a twist of fate, while the letter was on its way to Rome, the Roman senators conspired with the Roman Praetorian Guard and they had Caligula assassinated. The crisis was averted. I tell you that something greater then the temple is here. That was impossible. There was nothing greater than the temple. Besides, this is the third temple. They call it the second, but that's just because they pretend that the actual second temple didn't really exist. This was Herod's temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. The people were expelled from the city, and the Babylonians carted off all the treasures from the temple. They carted off some of the best and the brightest people from the city as well. That's when the Fab Four had their first road trip. You know the Fab Four? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Some years later, the Persian Empire, the Persians now were in power over the Babylonians. Times had changed. Persian Empire, uh, Emperor allowed the people to go back to their city. Cyrus the Great, he said, you can go back to your city. You can, you can even go back and rebuild your temple. But you can't build it as big as you built it the first time. We'll have the Econo second temple instead. And I, I want you to feel good about yourselves, but I don't want you feeling too good about yourselves. And, uh, and when it was opened up, there was people in the audience who were there to see the first temple and then to see the Econo second temple. And the text says that as they saw it, they wept because the temple was a shadow of what Solomon's temple had been. Then 20 years before Jesus is born, Herod the Great goes off, uh, goes to the Jews in the city of Jerusalem and he says, I'd really like to rebuild your temple, and bring it back to its former glory. I would like to build you a magnificent temple. And so they go back and forth, back and forth. There's some negotiations. And eventually the Jews give him permission. So 20 years before Jesus shows up, the temple is rebuilt and it is extraordinary. Here's a model. Take a look at this. The walls in some places are more than 100 feet high. This is about 37 acres of cut stone. 
zoom in, we get the temple structure here. Some of those parts are about 60 feet high. The thing that made it so magnificent, the thing that made it a thing of ancient wonder of the architectural world was this. The entire temple was built on the plaza, uh, all on cut stone. And some of the stones in the temple were 11 by 16 by 44 feet long. Some of the stones in this building weigh more than 500 tons. This is in an area where earthquakes are frequent. So Herod built an earthquake-proof temple for the Jews. Something greater than the temple, Jesus? I don't think so. So one afternoon, Jesus uh, and the crew, they're in the temple plaza, and they are leaving, and they're probably going down the southern stairs, and one of the guys kind of looked back over his shoulder, taking another peek at this impressive temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. It, it just struck him again. He would have been there many times in his life, but he was leaving and it was still putting him in awe. Just every time he would go, it's like a wow moment. How in the world did they carve stones so large? How on earth did they manage to transport those stones all the way up onto the Temple Mount? So once more they pause and they marvel at the incredible, mind-blowing buildings. So Jesus stops and he looks at them. And what comes next should make you pay attention. What follows if you are not a follower of Jesus for whatever reason? You had a bad experience. You met some lousy people. Maybe, you, maybe there's something about a six-day creation that throws you. Or how did they get all those animals inside an ark? I understand these objections. I've had plenty of bad experiences with church people too. But lock in here for just a moment. Because if you haven't heard this before, what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to say is so extraordinary that I would love to encourage you fact check me. Because what happens next is really, in the truest sense of the word, epic. Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The Greek term for thrown down, it, it, it doesn't mean fall down. It means exactly what it says in English. Every one of these massive stones will be thrown down, as in into the valley below, the base of the walls of the plaza. So they just stared at him. No way! So Jesus is saying, don't be so impressed. It's just a teardown. The, the problem with this is that it's impossible. You couldn't tear down Herod's temple. An earthquake might topple a parapet, might crack a foundation stone. You may lose a few bricks here and there. You might need to do some touch-ups, some repairs. But even an earthquake couldn't throw all the stones off the plaza into the valley below. There was only one force in the world at this time that was powerful enough to do that kind of damage. And that would be the Roman army. And the Roman army is not about to destroy Herod's temple. 
Herod is a vassal king. That means he works for Rome. And Herod wanted to build the temple to keep the Jews quiet and peaceful to maintain order. So Jesus, maybe we understood here, but this isn't just disturbing. This is impossible. If what you are saying were to happen, whew, that would be apocalyptic. That would be the end. The end of the temple is the end of the world, and we know it, and we will not feel fine. So they make their way down into the valley, and they make their way uh, kind of over the valley and up on the other side, up to the Mount of Olives. And the guys are still kind of in a kerfuffle about what Jesus had said about the temple. And we, we remember you saying that you were greater than the temple, and you know, that was weird. Uh, and, and now you're telling us that the temple, our temple, is about to come tumbling down all the way into the valley below? Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and there's a view here. This is just an awesome panoramic view of the city and the temple. You can see the whole thing there. He's sitting up there, and then Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. They just had to know. Like, Jesus, you dropped that, and we didn't, we didn't go any further with it. We've walked all the way over here. We can't stop thinking about it. It's just too much of a big deal. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things happen? And so he did. And I would love for you, tomorrow, today, maybe this afternoon, sometime, find yourself a Bible. Buy a Bible. Get the free Bible app on your phone, version. Dig in and go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 21. See what Jesus says about the days when this would happen. Write that down in your to-do app, okay? Here's a task for you to accomplish. Read Luke chapter 21. In summary, he says, when this takes place, you will see an army surrounding the city and the destruction of the city is about to happen. You should take everything and leave the city. Woe to pregnant women. Pray that there are no nursing mothers in these days. Men will die by the sword. They will pray for mercy. They will pray to die. It will be so horrible when what I have predicted takes place. He wasn't apologetic. He doesn't say, I was just speaking figuratively to get you the feel of it. This passage is regularly used to describe the end times and the rapture and stuff like that. But that's not what Jesus meant at all. Jesus was describing the end times, but not our end times. This has nothing to do with the end times for us, but with the end times of the Jews and the temple. When you read how he describes, you can feel in there that he is heartbroken. He's disturbed, but he is not exaggerating. But if that were to happen, their world would literally come to an end. And 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. After, 40, uh, after four years of battling a variety of uh, different Jewish gangs that had created an uprising against Rome, one giant victory over the Roman legion, and they thought, oh yeah, we're going to expel Rome, we've got momentum. That one victory gave them that push to begin raising armies in Galilee and throughout Judea. The regular folk watching this, they're kind of scared to death. They know that this is probably not going to end well, but the young men were alive and they felt like this is our time. And if we rise up together, we can conquer Rome. 
And then Rome sent in the 10th legion and others. And they began to herd the Jewish rebels from the north in Galilee and they pushed them down south all the way into Jerusalem. And they built a stone wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem. By this time, Vespasian, who had begun this war, had left and he went on to become the emperor in Rome. And he left his son Titus in charge. He began to build siege works around the city. Thousands and thousands of pilgrims and visitors were already there because it was a festival time. And originally they had said, no, 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 you can't go in. But then Titus, he opened the gates and he, and he had them escorted right into the city. They accompanied them all the way, offering protection. And then once they were in the city, the Romans sealed the city gates so that the food supply would be depleted faster. And what happened inside that city was horrible. They fought with the Romans by day and they fought with each other by night. The grain storage caught fire in one of their internal skirmishes. They were so sure that they were going to expel the Romans that they began fighting each other to decide who would be the next king of Israel. And on August 6th, 70 AD, the second wall was breached and the 10th legion went into the city and they killed just about everything that they could, everything that couldn't be sold into slavery. They burned everything that would burn, including the temple. And then again, literally, fact check me. They dragged every single stone used to build the temple off the ledge of the plaza and dumped it into the valley below. Today, you can still go to the southwestern corner of the temple and you're going to see some of the stones still there. It was never rebuilt. On that day, ancient Judaism died, never to be re resurrected, just as Jesus had predicted. This is what it looks like today. Center with the gold dome there, that's called the Dome of the Rock. Around 700 AD, Muslims came and built the Dome of the Rock. Um, this is one of the places where Jewish and Muslim people go to take a pilgrimage. This is where they go to see the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael or Isaac, depending on what religion you embrace. The gray building in the uh, sort of the center bottom, that's a mosque. The Haram al-Aqsa Mosque. Used to be smaller, but an earthquake uh, destroyed it, and they rebuilt it larger. In 1099, the Crusades retook the city. They took the mosque and they turned it into a church. 88 years later, Saladin came and retook the city for the Muslims, turned it back into a mosque. Rabbinic Judaism was born, but ancient Sinai Judaism never resurrected, just like Jesus predicted. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, I want to depart from the story for just a moment. What I want to explain to you next is a little bit complicated, but it's very important. The group of men that follows Jesus as apostles, you know, after Peter was martyred, after Paul was martyred, after Matthew was martyred, after every one of his uh, first century, well, 
after all of his original followers, the people who'd all lived with him, um, after they all died, the next group of people who stepped into leadership in the church are called the church fathers. The church fathers were quick to do exactly what I'm doing today. They said, aha, it happened just as Jesus predicted. Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. How in the world could someone predict something so epic and so easy to verify? Jesus said it, and it happened. Jesus predicted it, and that's exactly what happened. But the gospel writers, the writer of Matthew, the writer of Mark, the writer of Luke, the writer of John, don't do that. So that leaves a pretty big question just hanging out there. So if you're a skeptic, this is a question that you need to answer. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a question that you need to answer as well. Those gospel writers, how could they resist? How could they resist editorializing on such a huge phenomenon? How could they resist adding something like this to the text? And so it came about, just as Jesus said it would. Because if you read the gospels carefully, they do this all the time. Throughout the Gospels, they will say something like, Jesus said it, but the disciples didn't understand it at the time, but they remembered it later. They constantly editorialize because when they're writing it, they're looking back on Jesus. They're remembering what, what they were thinking. They were remembering what he did and what he said. They would interpret what he said and what he did when they were now standing on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So why in the world would Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John resist saying, oh my goodness, it happened, just as he said? You would if you were writing it. And especially when you listen to the detail Jesus gives in Luke 21, and in Matthew, and in Mark. So why not leverage this? Here's the answer. It's huge. It's momentous and tremendously overlooked. This is grounds for a whole new level of earnestly pursuing Jesus. Whether, whether you're just starting or thinking about starting or whether you've already been doing it for years. You ready? Here's why. When the Gospel of Mark was written, the temple was still standing. That's why Mark didn't say it. When the Gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. That's why Matthew didn't say, and sure enough, it happened. When Matthew um, was written, he included Jesus' prediction in lots of detail, but he didn't include the fulfillment of the prediction because it hadn't happened yet. When the Gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. Luke, who started his gospel by saying, I have thoroughly investigated all these things that you would have an orderly account of what the life of Jesus looked like and what he taught and what he did. When the gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. Now, here's the problem. When you were in school or maybe after school, or maybe when you begin to read some stuff, or maybe when that person shared that video with you, when you came across information that calls all of this into question, that it's contrary, the reason that you were told 
that the Gospels were written not by eyewitnesses, but by people many generations afterwards, is this very prediction. That's the reason they say it. Because if Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem in the detail he gives us, and it was not written after the fact, my friends, that's indisputable evidence that Jesus is worth following. Matthew didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Mark didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Luke didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. But, and this is not disputed in any way, but it happened just as Jesus said it would. This is the most verifiable prophecy ever given anywhere by anybody. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And it looks like the only reason that Jesus stopped to share this with his guys was because they were marveling at the temple. When you read it, Jesus isn't happy about it. He isn't gleeful. He doesn't say, write this down, Matthew. I know you got a book going. There's, there's, there's no um, grand, enormous public reveal right, on this major life-altering event on the imminent horizon. He's not saying, see here, when this happens, then all those doubters will be put in their place. Anyone who gave me a hard time, they're going to get what's coming to them. Then they'll know, then they'll know that I am who I claim to be. There was none of that. His heart was broken because these were his people. He came for them. He loved them. But Jesus was clear. The days of temple sacrifice, the days of animal sacrifice, the days of God's covenant with the nation of Israel were coming to an end. And it will be replaced by something new, by something improved, by something universal, and by something portable. 20 years later, while the temple is still standing, 20 years after Jesus makes this prediction, the ex-temple-loving, Christian-persecuting Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, writes a letter to ex-pagans in the city of Corinth who had their own temple experience. And he writes them these astounding words, and we miss them. We go right by them because we've never been temple people. Do you not know and of course, he wrote because they did not know. Did you not know that your bodies are temples? Something has changed. Something new has come. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The very same Holy Spirit that inhabited the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem. That same Holy Spirit now inhabits the hearts of men and the hearts of women. You are inhabited by the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. And again here, the significance is kind of lost on us. It's just loaded with all kinds of implications for first century pagans and for the Jewish people too. Here's some of the implications of the arrival of Jesus. Sacred has been commuted. 
there are no longer sacred objects. There is no longer sacred geography. There are no more sacred sites, only sacred individuals, sacred people. The message of the gospel of Jesus is that the new he came to introduce, he came to, not, not to a group of people, but to the world is this. You are seated beside sacred. You are raising sacred. The stage was set with Jesus for the upending of all society. The upside down. The seeds were sown for the end of slavery. The seeds were sown for the dignity of all mankind. And more revolutionarily, for the dignity of all womankind. Because there is an inexpressible link between the message of Jesus and human freedom. Because there is a link between the message of Jesus, between human dignity and the cross. The price he paid to declare the worth of every single person who has ever walked the planet. There is an inexplicable link between the teachings of Jesus and your value, your worth, your intrinsic, not a sign, your intrinsic dignity. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And it was. Something greater than the temple had come to the world for the world. And then he predicted the temple came down. And then eventually, along with temples all over the Roman Empire, for the life and the love of God had been released and manifested to the world, for the world. And here's where this intersects with you. Here's where this intersects with you. Here's where this intersects with me. That Jesus' original invitation still stands. As it stood before the temple came down, how much more powerful now that the temple has come down. Before the resurrection, this invitation was extended. How much more significant is it today that it's extended to us after the resurrection? And the invitation is simply this. Follow me. Follow me and you will find life that is truly life. Follow me and you will find abundant life. Follow me and you will find meaning in life. Follow me and you will find fearless life. Follow me and you will find life that is now bookended by eternity. And you will never be the same. And you will never see the same again. And follow me not because of faith, Follow me because I have demonstrated myself faithful. Follow me because I have given you more than enough evidence for you to know that I am He, the one that your heavenly Father sent to pay for your sins to establish a relationship with your heavenly Father. Follow me. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you resist that? Why would you fear that? Kind Father, I thank you for the gifts that you have laid out before us. And I know that there's a bunch of stuff we talked about today, and it's probably going to be hard to put it all together. 
it's hard to wrestle through all these things, but I pray that the spirit that we talked about today, the one that's living in me, one that's living in you, that that spirit would testify to the truth of what's going on and you would have an ache inside that says, I got to follow. And whether that means continue to follow, deepen my intensity and earnestly pursue Jesus, or whether that means refollow, I got to restart. I got distracted. I got pulled away. Hard things happened. One thing led to another and, and, and it was gone. I, 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 I got distracted. Whether you've never been following, draw us to yourself, I pray. Cause the truth of your life, the truth of your words, the love of our God to be made evident to us today. And then, Lord Jesus, give us the ability to take a next step. There is no one today that, that should be able to walk away and say, that's it. Pleasant. No difference. Each one of us has a step for us that's next. Maybe that's coming, saying to Jesus for the first time, God, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But, but I do want to follow you. I realize that I do things that are selfish. I do things that are, well, I don't even follow my own rules. I certainly don't follow all of yours. God, I see that I have failed in those ways that you call that sin and that separates me from you. God, I want to, I want to put that aside. I want to deny that. I want to declare that I'm against that. I want to do a turn and when we say the word repent, that means what I want to do is I want to change direction. I want to leave that behind and I want to go in this new direction. I want to follow you because up until now I've been following me and I, and I just keep dropping the ball. I, I, I don't know how to make great decisions on my own, but I keep making them like I do. God, I want to follow you. Accept my thanks for what you've done. And I pray that you would give me the new life that you have promised. That I'd be part of that new covenant. That new arrangement between my Heavenly Father and me. For those of you who have uh, kind of been churching for years. May this new step of follow be a next step for you. That is, I will increase my earnestness. I won't just be passive. I won't just say that happened in my past. Let it go. But I will earnestly pursue you. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would provide guidance on what that means, what the next step really is. Do I need to get baptized? Do I need to start praying with somebody else? Do I need to start reading my Bible again? Do I need someone to help me do that? Do I need to start serving? Because I'm holding that back. I, I keep saying that I don't have enough time for you, but I got time for everything else. And I want to get closer to you. And I understand that the way to get closer to you is to pursue you. And as I pursue you, you will pursue me as well. Make me generous in my time, with my treasure, and with my talent. And if you've been passionate 
for years than delight in the love of God. Delight in his favor upon you and don't keep your mouth shut. Speak with your life. Speak with your words. Offer love. Offer forgiveness. Offer hope. Offer grace to those who are around you. What is your next step? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take that one because if we don't, we just stay where we are. And where we are, that's the past. Move us together into the future with you. Thank you for your presence with us. A presence that doesn't just come in this building, but walks out of this building with us. God be glorified in my life and in the lives of my friends here and listening today. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.